Welcome to Wisdom Talk Radio, a collaborative community of explorers in conscious living. I've always loved finding the connections between what seem like disparate disciplines. And it's, it's really, it's just the way I work. These connections I find are the fertile ground for discovering and creating new operating systems. It's how we unlock our potential. My guest today is a pioneer and bridge builder, and I look forward to a fascinating conversation with him. I'm Laurie Seymour, host of Wisdom Talk Radio and CEO and founder of the Baca Institute. Head there to discover your quantum connection with your inner guidance by taking the quantum connection quiz. We are each designed to connect differently with the universal field, with source. Knowing your own way of doing that is the first step of aligning with your inner guidance at a deeper level than you ever thought you could. It's the secret to having abundant flow in your business and personal life. So my guest today is Andrew Newberg. He is the research director of the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and a professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College at Thomerson Jefferson University. For those of you who don't know, that's in Philadelphia where I was born and raised. Um, he is the author of 10 books, including the bestseller, How God Changes Your Brain, and is regarded as one of the most influential neuroscientists working today. He is a pioneer in the neurological study of religious and spiritual experiences, a field known as neurotheology. You can see why who I am really wanted to have Andrew on today. Uh, his research includes taking brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, rituals, and trance states in an attempt to better understand the nature of religious and spiritual practices and attitudes. Welcome, Andy. I am so delighted to have you here on Wisdom Talk Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. You are welcome. So, as I was saying to you as before we started this, that I'm so interested in your work in neurotheology. And I'd love for you to describe what that is. And then, this is a two-part question, <laughs> and then to build us the bridge that, that you took into writing your current book, Brain Weaver, about optimal brain health? So, well, um, two great questions to start. Uh, you know, for me, neurotheology is uh, what I like to refer to. It's an emerging field of scholarship and research. Um, to me, I think the simplest definition of it is that it is the field that helps, to help us, helps us to link the relationship between our brain and our religious and spiritual selves. So there's a couple of important points about that, though. Uh, one is is that um, it is not unidirectional; it's bidirectional. So it is not just science studying religion. Um, it is not just religion commenting on science, but it is taking these two very powerful forces of human history, our science and technological on one side, our spiritual and religious on the other side, and letting them look at each other, help to understand each other, and ultimately help us to understand ourselves more effectively. Now, a couple of other important points about neurotheology, I think as a term at least, um, are worth mentioning. One is, is that for me, for the term to work, 
Um, I, I like to define both sides, the neuro side and the theology side very broadly. So the neuro side is not just neuroscience, although certainly it includes that and neuroimaging, um, but it includes the, the broader aspects of medicine, um, how we think about the, the body and the mind-body connection, uh, aspects of psychology, um, even anthropology, sociology, kind of all the ways we kind of get at the human mind and brain. And then the theology side, um, theology, of course, is a very specific discipline that has to do with how we kind of analyze a given tradition. And so we can talk about theological questions, um, things that relate to uh, aspects like uh, questions like about free will and sin and, and revelation and, and so forth. Um, but also it expands beyond that. So it is not just thinking about theological questions, but uh, various beliefs and attitudes that people have, behaviors that people do because of religious and spiritual beliefs, uh, different practices, meditation and prayer uh, experiences that people have. And I know we can we can expand and talk about each of these, um, but but really kind of looking at the broad uh, aspect of all different types of religious and spiritual phenomena. So I think if you think about neurotheology in that kind of context as a two-way street and as very you know broad on both sides, uh, that to me is what allows neurotheology to become uh, a field that I, I hope uh, and think will become very, very important as we go forward. <laughs> and, and it is... Uh, in terms of your second question about how that led me into the the discussion uh, that we have in Brainweaver, um, one of the things I like to say about neurotheology and that gets me very excited about it as a field is that it ranges from the very esoteric. So we can have philosoph, you know, talk about philosophical questions, the nature of reality, what is consciousness, and so forth, to very practical aspects. Um, so does a certain kind of meditation help to improve anxiety? Uh, what does yoga do to the human brain? Does it affect our immune system? So you get into these very practical aspects of that. And that is what ultimately led me into not only looking at religion and spirituality from a brain perspective, but other aspects of human health and well-being. And so our social being, our psychological being, uh, and ultimately our biological being, uh, how all of those different dimensions of who we are come together to help us to create some kind of health and well-being, some optimum health uh, of the brain itself. And so it was kind of a natural development of the practical side of neurotheology to be able to explore all the different ways in which we can help to make our brain healthy. So I want to, can we take that even another step further? Because that, that's actually where I was, what I was thinking about as you were t describing neurotheology is, okay, understanding, you know, and we know <laughs> That while understanding is fabulous and that I spent many decades, you know, wanting to understand everything about me and everything about life and others. And that's why I went into the field of psychology. But then we go beyond that into what you started with is talking about how to make that practical. You know, mm -hmm. what are the practical applications of this? And there's a couple of ways we can go with that. We can look at Okay, things like how is it useful in terms of anxiety or depression or, you know, things that people are struggling with. The other side of that, and, and, I, and I'm sounding like there are two different ways of, of going about things, but it's really not that simple. Um, it's not that binary or it's right. not binary. Uh, but the other that I'm focused on here or wondering about how you might see it is about our potential as, as human beings. In other words, from the perspective of thriving, how might 
this research and your discoveries and, and the ways that you're, you're conceptualizing all of this, how might they mm, add to how we, how we use our own system, you know, our sure. physical, emotional, energetic system? Well, we actually wrote a, another book called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, which I think, you know, very much addresses that question where uh -huh. we talk a lot about the most intense types of spiritual experiences that people have. Um, it's based off of a lot of data from a, an online survey that we ran over a period of about seven years mm -hmm. where we got over 2000 people talking about their most intense religious and spiritual experiences and under what circumstances they had. Uh, they had those experiences, what types of religious backgrounds they, you know, they came from mm -hmm. um, and really putting together this whole set uh, of what effectively is a varieties of spiritual experience, which actually is mm -hmm. the next book I have coming out. Um, and, uh, and, and in there we talk about, you know, what are these experiences, uh, the spiritual aspects, the, the numinous, the, the mm -hmm. God experiences and so forth. And, um, and part of where that leads us is one trying to understand those experiences. So, um, you know, when people have an experience like that, there are certain characteristics of it mm -hmm. that signify or identify it for that individual as this kind of experience um, mm -hmm. that, that takes them to that next level, as you're talking about. Uh, for example, uh, one of the main characteristics that they talk about, uh, that people talk about, is a sense of clarity. Mm -hmm. So when, when you get to that next stage, when you get to that next exp that spiritual experience, it provides you this sense of clarity, a sense of meaning and purpose in the world, that you understand the world in a way that you never have before. And, and it of course, changes this, your life then. And it changes your life and it changes your brain, you know, yeah. so... so so okay. the way your brain looks at the world um, and the way you perceive the world, your emotions, your thoughts and so forth. Uh, yes. It, and, and it is transformative. And in fact, in our survey, and this is some research papers that we published, um, you know, 80, 90 percent of people will say that these experiences made them feel better about their their sense of health and well-being, their sense of meaning and purpose in the world, certainly their sense of spirituality and religion. Mm -hmm. um, they no longer fear death, for example. And, and you know, only a very, very tiny percent, one or two percent ever said that these experiences made them feel worse, which in and of itself is a fascinating question, which we mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. get to. But um, but but anyway, but uh, you know, so so there's this sense of clarity, um, there's a sense of intensity. Uh, these experiences, there's something that makes them more so than kind of our everyday reality experiences. And, uh, and so, you know, that's important in, in terms of some of the emotional centers of our brain, making us feel these experiences extremely deeply and very powerfully, which give them that transformative aspect. In fact, it's interesting that the emotional centers of our brain that get triggered by these experiences are also tied deeply into our memory uh, aspects of them, right. the memory parts of our brain. So we remember them vividly. And, and that's part of also how they transform who we are. So, you know, there are certain characteristics of these experiences. Um, and, and then from there, we can also talk a little bit about um, uh, even more directly about the question that you were raising mm -hmm. about, well, so how do we do this? You know, what are we, are there, are there pathways that we can take to help people to engage that, that, that higher sense of themselves, that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that next, you know, stage, whatever people want to call it. And of course, this then spills back into the brainweaver concept about how do we, you know, while there's certainly the whole biological piece of things and avoiding, you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and so forth, mm -hmm. but there is that other aspect of, 
overall health and well-being, a perspective on the world which is different than what the sort of the everyday experience is. And those very positive experiences can can typically lead to very beneficial psychological and even physical health benefits because it, it changes the whole set point of how, how the brain and ultimately the body are operating. Oh, and we I can, love that. The change. So say something more about changing the set point of, of how the our operating system changes. Well, so, you know, this is part of what we have started to look at. Um, a lot of our studies that we talk about, for example, in Brainweaver, um, look at people longitudinally. And if we take them down various paths, working on their diet and nutrition, working on a, a meditation or prayer practice, um, you know, whatever intervention that you do. Um, we do brain scans before and after, and we can show that there are lots of differences that are going on. So different parts of the brain are more active. Other areas of the brain are less active. And, uh, and one of the things we talk a lot about in Brainweaver is the idea of balance and how you kind of create a, an appropriate balance in the brain. So, so what we think happens during these kinds of practices and these very intense experiences is that it, it does kind of rebalance the brain. And we actually, there's something in imaging called functional connectivity, mm -hmm. um, how different parts of the brain are actually connected to each other. And so, you know, what we see is that these are actually changed by uh, these experiences. It changes the way the brain essentially is kind of wired, works together uh, in one way or another. And, uh, and that in and of itself is very, very important. Now, you know, another study that we did um, which addresses this question in a, in a slightly different way um, was an interesting study that we did looking at uh, not just how different parts of the brain are, are connecting to each other, but the amounts of different neurotransmitters in the brain. And so, um, you know, this is a whole other area of, of looking at the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, some of the critical molecules in the brain, like serotonin, like dopamine, um, we had a study where we sent people through a very intense, very immersive, uh, transformative, if you will, uh, spiritual retreat program mm -hmm. and we scanned their dopamine areas and their serotonin areas initially. And then after, you know, they went through this program for about a week and then they came out and we scanned them again. And what we showed was, was that their brain was more sensitive to the effects of serotonin and dopamine, which are very important molecules in the brain that have a lot to do with, uh, well, dopamine is regarded as the, you know, the, the, the feel good molecule. It's the, in the reward system of the brain. So it gives us these uplifting feelings and serotonin has been highly implicated in uh, depression. When serotonin levels go low, um, then people wind up with depression. And of course, if you really stimulate serotonin levels, which is what we see in like psychedelic uh, compounds, then you get this extensive relief release of dope, uh, excuse me, of serotonin uh, in the brain, which can lead to these euphoric, um, you know, kinds of feelings and, and also transformative and even spiritual-like experiences. So, so we're able to see that the brain has actually sort of changed the way it works and, uh, and we can observe that directly so that we can then start to link up what's going on inside your head with how the person actually feels. Wow. Wow. I love it. I, I, I get very excited and, and my mind starts to go in so many directions that it, um, it's like, okay, how are we, what are we going to do here right now? <laughs> uh, no, what I mean in, in our conversation, because Whoa. there's so many places that I want to explore. Um, so 
the sky is the limit when it comes to neurotheology. I'll give you that. Boy, is it ever. And <laughs> it's beyond what we even think it is, is what I'm oh, really yeah. saying. Um, because you're talking in ways that, you know, you're focusing on the brain, you're focusing on these numinous experiences. And then we really go beyond that because all the research that the quantum physicists have been doing for decades now and demonstrating the way in which we are, we are part of this quantum field. We are, we are not separate from anything else. And, and yet when we look outside of the world and we see what's going on in the world today, what, what I at least see is so much experience of separation Hmm. of, of division. Right. And, and you're talking about the changes in the brain that really relate to connectivity, not just connectivity, uh, uh, well, connectivity at the microcosmic level, and then extending out from there, that sense of being connected to universe, connected to others, and so forth. Well, and, and there are two really important points in there. Um, so, you know, one is that I didn't get to mention yet, um, when it comes to those spiritual experiences, <coughs> that... Um, there, you know, one of one of the other critical elements, one of the core elements of that, uh, are are feelings of self transcendence and feelings of connectivity. And so, one of the areas of the brain that we have looked at with the brain scan works that we have done uh, is in an area of the brain called the parietal lobe, located more towards the back of the brain, which takes our sensory information and helps us to create a sense of ourself and how our self relates to the world. And what we find in these very intense practices is a profound decrease of activity in this area, which actually makes interesting sense because if this area normally kind of takes the sensory information and helps us to create our sense of self and how our self relates to the world, when activity in that area starts to quiet down, we'll, we lose that, we, we lose that sense of self and we lose that sense of boundary between ourself and the world. So we feel a sense of connectedness, a sense of oneness, either between ourself and the world, or even, you know, with the objects that are in the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's a, the, the classic notion of, you know, uh, being one with everything, um, uh, or, or some kind of universal oneness. And so that is a very fundamental part of virtually all of these spiritual experiences that mm-hmm. people have. And, and has, uh, again, the transformative effects. So, um, you know, that is a very important aspect of, of what we need to look at when it comes to these experiences. And the other point you mentioned um, about quantum mechanics and, and so forth is that uh, I, I wrote another book about 10 years ago called uh, Principles of Neurotheology and, and really try to outline what the field of neurotheology mm-hmm. looks like and what it can do. And, and one of the aspects of that um, had to do with you know, not just relying on existing approaches, um, not just looking at mm-hmm. what we can know from an MRI scan, uh, but really, you know, thinking outside of the box and knowing that trying to, to track down what happens during a spiritual experience in somebody, you know, we need to look, we need to look at the biology, but there may be more to it. And whether that ultimately has to do with other, you know, other types of energy, mm-hmm. quantum mechanics, um, you know, to me, while we should be appropriately, um, you know, skeptical or, you know, certainly analytical, mm-hmm. uh, I should say, I, I, I think the, the term that I, we've sometimes used is, is a scoptimist so that you're skeptical, <laughs> skeptical, but, but in a positive way, you know, in right, a constructive right. way. And let's, so, let's be open to what we can discover. Yeah, and be open. Right. And, and, and that to me is a very fundamental principle of neurotheology, which is that, you know, until we really can shut the door on something, um, we should be, we should be open and we should look at it. And, you know, certainly there are lots of studies out there, which have shown, you know, some fascinating 
amazing results about the mind and consciousness having the ability to apparently get beyond the brain. Um, and, you know, while I'm also not willing to just say, oh, yeah, absolutely, this happens, um, you know, we have to take those accounts and those studies very seriously and, uh, and, and think about what mechanisms may, you know, how that may occur, what that, what that may mean, uh, and how we think about it. And so, um, and also so, how to test for that. I mean, that, and how to test for that. Exactly. I, I have a, a friend and colleague who has been involved in this work with me for, for, for decades, and he is a cellular biologist and a research scientist. And he, I remember him saying a long time ago that science has never caught up to what, where this kind of experiential energetic level is. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, until that happens, it's going to be harder to get the kind of fundamental research that people will look at and say, oh, yes, that's true. Right. Right. And, and, you know, the, 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 the big, you know, hundred thousand dollar question is, is, you know, where we ultimately are in understanding the universe in terms of matter versus consciousness or, or mind or whatever, you know, whatever terms people want to use. Um, you know, is there something that goes beyond the material world? Uh, or is this, is it all, you know, I mean, quantum mechanics itself gets pretty, pretty wacky, right, um, right. you know, even though it's, it's all material. So, or I guess, well, uh, you know, it's <laughs> at, at least, from quantum, waves. <laughs> right. I mean, at least from the physics perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, you know, but does it, is it touching into something that is different? Um, and, and if so, is that something which is, you know, really, um, just the material world in a way that we don't understand it, mm -hmm. or is there something else, uh, some other characteristic of the world? And, uh, you know, a, a number of years ago, and I mean, this is obviously a, a, maybe an argument that extends back thousands of years and Descartes with the duality and so forth, um, is, you know, where does sort of consciousness and, uh, matter come about and is consciousness and our thoughts and our feelings, um, do they derive from the brain? Um, or is the brain kind of along for the ride and, and just helping us to feel these experiences? And, um, you know, as I always point out, even to my most staunch uh, materialists, uh, you know, you got inside your brain, you have neurons, you have sodium and potassium depolarizing across the membranes. You have neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. You've got blood flow and metabolism and electrical activity and quadrillions of neurons all interconnected with each other, um, you know, where in all of that are our thoughts, you know, where in all of that are our experiences. And the bottom line is we, we don't have an answer oh, no. to that question. So oh, yeah. um, where does, where does consciousness lie? Where does it come and, from? Right. And that if you've got all of those interactions, not one, not two, I mean, you know, billions, then you're, you've got something that has to be in some way beyond what we are able to, to see. Right. And, and and, that's and, and you get into an, I mean, you know, to, to me, the, the fundamental to be, you know, somewhat simplistic, but, you know, you either, if you start with the material world, mm -hmm. then you have this fundamental disconnect of trying to explain consciousness. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean can't, we won't be able to, mm -hmm. but we certainly haven't yet or gotten even close to it. Um, so you could say, well, let's start with consciousness, which is certainly a, a valid perspective to take and, and at the heart of many religious and spiritual traditions. But then you have to explain where the physical world comes from if you're just starting with consciousness. And so, um, you know, now again, uh, that's part of where I, I feel neurotheology has its strength because it's saying, well, let, let's look at both. You know, let, let's not just start with one or pick one or the right, other right. and try to make it work, but let's try to bring them together in some way that that helps us to better understand 
um, how to answer those kind of profound questions. So, uh, you know, I, whether we will get an answer that way either, I don't know. I mean, but uh, in your but lifetime, sort of feel, it's, it's our best shot, I think. Uh, at least well, that's my okay. feeling. So, because you're 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 a neurologist, that's your that's your focus, of course. Then the brain and its concomitant parts um, are, are what's in your in your field of view. Um, there's a whole set of work done around the mind in the cell. And, and that it, it's like, I, I don't know exactly how to bring that into this, but looking at consciousness being contained in every cell in the body. And that's my experience when I go into a deeper level of awareness. Um, and then that changes how we, how we speak about things, but also how we experience the world and how we, how we can tune into um, aspects of the world that might be outside of our normal everyday um, abilities to, to, to view and to touch and to uh, make contact with. Well, you know, I, I think that this does start to, you know, spill into the discussion about our, our you know, our, our latest book, Brain Weaver, because, you know, we talk about the different dimensions of the person. And we don't mean that in terms of, you know, physical, right. you know, the, the 12th dimension or whatever. But, but you know, there to us, there there are four main dimensions of how we think of the person. And there is the biological, which is kind of the, the standard medical perspective to take. Um, there's uh, There is the psychological and, and a lot of the work that, that you and, and many people in the psychological realm uh, deal with and our emotions, our feelings and so forth. Um, there's the social, which, uh, you know, how we interact with others and with the world around us. And then, and then finally, there's the spiritual. And so, you know, for us to achieve some kind of optimal brain health, we need to do our best to uh, optimize and balance all those different dimensions. Uh, and, and the kind of thing that you're talking about here in terms of, um, you know, whether there is even more to us than, than just the purely material, um, you know, that, that extends into that spiritual part, that spiritual realm. And of course, you know, whether there is or not, um, you know, that those are questions for neurotheology to continue to engage and discuss. But, but, you know, certainly you know, when we look at many aspects of integrative health and integrative medicine, um, while, you know, we feel, you know, when we define integrative medicine, we, you know, one thing we say is, look, if you need a medic, you know, if you need an antidepressant, mm -hmm. uh, if you need a medicine to help you with your cholesterol, well, fine, you know, we're, we don't have a problem with doing that. Uh, but there's these other aspects of ourself and the social and, and especially the spiritual um, that can be very important, very important for somebody's psychological and even biological health as well. And so, you know, helping people to to find their pathways, um, you know, depending on whatever their religious or spiritual traditions are or perspectives might be. Um, and, and even for those people who don't have a strong religious or spiritual belief, um, you know, almost everybody still engages that sense of connectivity that you mentioned earlier. You know, how do we connect to the universe? Um, how do we connect to ourselves, to others uh, through, you know, the various uh, behaviors, charity, forgiveness, compassion, creativity. Um, so, you know, these are the kinds of things that people can, can work towards that help us to, to activate that spiritual side of ourself and, and try to get that to be engaged in our overall health and well-being. And, and part of what we talk about in Brain Weaver, too, is a little bit about, you know, each person has to 
to take some stock in who they are as a person, where are their strengths mm -hmm. and weaknesses. And some people have a very, very strong and very positive spiritual life, um, others less so. And, um, and so, you know, each person has to kind of figure out where, where their strengths lie and how to optimize those strengths and then use those strengths to, to work with the areas that might diminish them. Um, and, uh, and ultimately to optimize the strengths as well. So, you know, if somebody does have a very strong spiritual life, mm -hmm. then, um, you know, using that to help them in their social context and in their psychological and even biological context could, could be very, very helpful. And for other people, it's inverted and, you know, goes the other way. So, yeah. um, but that, th th these are the kinds of questions for us to, to look at and explore. And, you know, we know, there's a lot of data to support that people who have a uh, very strong spiritual, uh, you know, spirituality is a very important part of their lives. Religion and spirituality are important. Um, they tend to have lower rates of depression and anxiety. They tend to have a more, uh, a stronger sense of meaning and purpose in life. And ultimately they have better health outcomes, physical health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether or not that is because uh, of the beliefs, whether there is something that they are able to tap into, which goes beyond just the purely biological. I mean, these are all the questions for us to, to continue to explore and see how, what these mechanisms may ultimately be. Yeah, because I think they are tapping into something biological and, and I don't think that's separate. I tend to not use the word spiritual or religious. I'm really focusing. I focus more on, on energy yeah. and, and how we experience energy, but how we use that in in everyday life. How mm -hmm. we, as we, in other words, for something like personal expression, I know you did a lot in your book, you were a lot about creativity. And, right. I, and I was like, oh, this is, this is really important. Because right. I find that as people are able to express themselves creatively in their life, and that goes beyond just, you know, music or art, or it could be how they cook dinner, how they live their life. Right. Done, right. um, you know, using that, using our life force. I mean, that's not right. a scientific term, but uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But using that life force in a positive way, in a, in a way that mm, lines up with who they are, and mm -hmm. that they actually don't damn it up, that they actually express that in the world. Right. Right. And, and again, you know, to me, you know, part of what neurotheology is about is trying to understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and then hopefully through that understanding, we are able to help people to find those paths that are that are most effective for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the important aspects of, of integrative medicine, and we talk about this a lot throughout Brain Weaver, is the individualized aspect of all of this. Um, yes. There is certainly not a one size fits all. And, mm -hmm. and that's certainly the case for the energies that you're talking about, um, you know, how uh, a, a given individual, you know, what their overall energy is, biological or otherwise, mm -hmm. um, you know, what their balances are, what their imbalances are. Uh, everyone, you know, has whatever it is that makes them who they are. And, um, and so again, trying to work with that, trying to identify where various balances and imbalances are, and then to use, again, the strengths, the things that are well-balanced to help bring the things that are out of balance 
back into balance. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, to, to us is very, very important and, uh, and, and important to maintain that overall sense of health and well-being. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to talk about things in that context of, uh, you know, what, not just the, the notion of a person's sense of their own energy and, and what that means for them, but, um, but to help people recognize what paths may be the most effective. And some people will follow the path of music and some people mm-hmm. will follow meditation and some yoga and some traditional religions, some science, you know, I mean, like there's, there is not a one size fits all that gets you to those intense experiences. In fact, you know, going back to the experiences I mentioned in the how enlightenment changes your brain book, we, we talk a lot about the experiences themselves and how people describe them. And while on one hand, we can talk about universal kind of core characteristics, like the sense of connectivity you mentioned, um, the sense of clarity, sense of intensity, uh, almost every one of them was completely unique as well. You know, so, so each one of them, exactly what happens to each person, um, is unique. And, um, you know, I say this a lot in my own kind of broader discussion about neurotheology and just understanding Mm -hmm. humanity, um, that, uh, you know, given, that each one of us has our own genetics for the most part. And then mm-hmm. our parent, how our parents raised us are, you know, whether we had siblings or not, the experiences that we had, the teachers that we had, the things that we read, the traumas that we faced, uh, the triumphs that we faced, you know, and then here you are at the age of, you know, 25, 40, 80, whatever, um, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that everyone comes to a different perspective. And, you know, it, it, it goes back to something that you mentioned earlier about how this sort of divisiveness and division that we see. And, uh, you know, on one hand, yes, you know, that's, that's part of what, you know, to me, if there are seven and a half billion people in the world, there's seven and a half billion religions and there are seven and a half billion political systems and seven and a half billion, <laughs> you know, moral systems, mm-hmm. uh, you know, n- no, no two people are the same, but on the same, you know, but by the same token, um, we can try to find those commonalities and, uh, but also embrace what those differences are and, uh, and appreciate that. And so, uh, to me, you know, one of the things that I always feel like I've learned from all of my work in neurotheology is a, is a very healthy respect, uh, and appreciation and compassion for the fact that people came to answers about the world that are very different than, than my answers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then part of what we talk about in, in Brain Weaver and, and some of our other books too, uh, is is, you know, how do we keep people on those, you know, on more positive pathways and really try to avoid some of the, the, the times when these things do go very negative for people. And, right. and that is, I think, an important, you know, whether you're talking about the mass murders that we see right. or, or terrorists or, or even just, you know, people who join cults or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are times where think, you know, things kind of go in a direction, which is ultimately very detrimental either for the individual or for the larger society. And, um, and I think by studying even, you know, that aspect to oh, me is a whole new area of neurotheology to, to yeah. really look at, um, you know, when, when spirituality and religion, when these energies, you know, go bad and, um, and see what we can do to understand what happens and maybe hopefully, you know, find the pathways that can redirect people into something that's, that's more positive. We, we know what happens, you know, we know people hit those rock bottoms right, and right. drugs and all this stuff. And then sometimes, you know, things turn around. Um, sometimes they don't, you know, and, and so if, if you were to speculate given, well, given your expertise, really, if you were to, if you were to speculate about some of the situations that you were just talking about, the kinds of, you know, the terrorists, the mass murderers, the whatever, what part of the brain do you feel like gets activated, um, that in a way that is detrimental? 
Yeah, I, you know, and it's so a great many question. That are, are in that question that are, you know, that I want to kind of restate, but you, you get my idea. Yeah, you know, my my I, early on, I, I was trying to think of a way, think of it in, in simplistic ways, you know, and just mm-hmm. that you know maybe it's like an amygdala reaction that mm-hmm. they just get mm-hmm. very you know fearful and all right, that. Right. Um, I think it's more complicated than that, yeah. uh, and I mean, not surprisingly, <laughs> it comes to the brain. Um, I, you know, I, we talk a lot in our books about. Um, the sort of the narrative, um, the, 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 the perspective that each of us creates, the, the belief system that each of us creates, the story that each of us creates about ourselves and about the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one hopes that that story, again, you know, takes on a positive perspective, uh, both with regard to ourselves, that we try to be good people, um, we try to be charitable, we try to work with other people and, um, you know, do good things and, and strive for, for, from some higher, you know, enlightenment at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to a certain extent that we hope that the world around us has a certain degree of, of idealism and optimism that we might be able to, you know, take part in. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then of course, you know, to me, I think what happens, what seems to happen when, you know, especially when you hear people interviewed who have gone down the paths of terrorism cults, you know, even some of the mass murder uh, who have been interviewed and so forth, um, that they get into this completely negative story about themselves and the world that, you know, that the world is an evil place that, that, you know, it's, 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 it's oppressing them, punishing them, uh, you know, whatever, whatever terminology they may use. Um, and, and that ultimately, instead of trying to embrace the differences in the world, um, the solution appears to be, uh, to, to, to start to react in a very negative kind of way. And, uh, you know, on a very simplistic level, um, uh, one of the things that we talk about, especially when it comes to like religious and spiritual beliefs, but obviously this is true of, of political beliefs and moral beliefs mm-hmm. and so forth, uh, as well is that we create this story in our mind. We create the idea of, of what the world is mm-hmm. and we need that. We need that to survive. That's part of how our brain works. So we, we, when we get up in the morning, we kind of know what to do. <laughs> and now, you know, when, when you get somebody else who says, wait a minute, you know, you're not thinking about the world correctly. This is the right way to think about the world. And again, this, this could be a religious discussion. It could be a political, you know, it could be a, a Republican talking to a Democrat or something. Um, your brain now has two choices. You know, your brain has the choice of saying, uh, I'm right and the other person's wrong mm-hmm. or the other person's right and I'm wrong. Now, now you know, there's the always a third have- option. <laughs> well, well there, are, there are third options, yes, um, that we could both be right in certain ways. Um, well, I, 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 I don't even mean that. I think there's just, there's a, wait, let, let's hold that though. Let's hold that thought. Go ahead and finish. With well, uh, again, on, on a very simplistic level, uh, you know, one option is that the brain says I'm right. Uh, and, and it, you know, if the, if the brain thinks that it's wrong, if the, if the brain ultimately thinks that we don't understand the world properly, that is a very anxiety, you know, very fearful position to be in because that means we don't understand the world and, and that, that becomes dangerous. So it's far easier for our brain to say, wait a minute, no, we've got this right. We know how the world is. Uh, the other person must be wrong. And now, you know, once, once we make that determination, as that other person continues to persist to tell us that we're wrong, now our brain starts to get more and more aggravated with that, you know, why would they keep telling us that we're wrong when we know that we're right? And, and then, you know, it becomes more of a, well, that person must be evil. You know, why would, why would somebody Mm -hmm. do that to you? You know, why would some, you know, uh, maybe they're, they're not even like, you know, maybe they're like truly evil and should be part of the world, you know? Um, and so, you know, when we think about, you know, 
uh, hurting or harming or killing somebody who doesn't believe the way we do, um, it's almost like they're not part of reality, and mm-hmm. uh, or at least the reality in the in the story as we understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's where you know we really wind up going down some very negative paths. Now I don't know exactly how we you know we change a given person's story about the world, but. Uh, I, I think it, it, you know, it is a pretty complex process that, that ultimately, you know, for a lot of people has taken many, many years to get there. And, uh, you know, we see this a lot with people who have, who have gone down these negative paths that they've had very traumatic childhoods and, you know, uh, you know, have a lot of issues and problems that they have faced throughout their life. Um, but, uh, but not always, you know, and, and again, I mean, you know, it's, it's the story I think that they ultimately tell that, um, that leads them down one path or another. So but and I, and I'm, I'm curious to know what the third option may be. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's how I live. One of the ways I live life is that there's always a third option. Hmm. There's always another way to see things, to experience things than that either or perspective. Right. Right. And, and when we're open to saying being curious and, you know, and I'm be interested, what is, you know, what part of the brain is, does curiosity live in? Um, you know, what part gets lit up when I'm curious about, well, how else could it be? How else, what if I want to have a loving perspective? I might not be feeling that in this moment, but I want to see it beyond the you're right or you're, or I'm wrong. Right. And and to see not, not just from the simplistic, you know, win-win, I don't mean it that way, but I really mean what's another option here. I, I, I do that all the time with clients and with people in my trainings about looking at their business, for example. You know, and they they have an idea. I want to go down this way, but if I don't do that, I got to do this. Well, there's always another way to to move forward. Right. Well, and and you know, we uh, another book that that I wrote uh, <laughs> called "Why We Believe What We Believe." Mm. Um, you know, did talk a lot about that and mm-hmm. talked about the value and the power of trying to embrace alternative perspectives. Mm-hmm. But it's a challenge. I mean, you know, because it is scary. It's scary to suggest. It can be scary. It can be right. Yeah. And. Um, uh, and well, and I guess, but I think part of it is, and again, this may have something to do with how people's brains are wired, you know, and, and again, whether that's just how they were wired genetically or um, how they, you know, have been wired over time. Yeah. But I think some of it certainly is genetic, which is, mm-hmm. you know, how do you react to new things? Um, and, you know, we, I, I joke with my, my wife about um, my eating habits because I'm not a very adventuresome eater. And, and part of the reason why I am not is that genetically my taste buds are such that if I try something new, Mm-hmm. I know there's only about a 10% chance that I'm going to like it because that's been my experience over my lifetime. That whenever uh-huh. I try something new, I generally don't like it. So, so is I that genetics with, or is that your experience? Well, it's my genetics because when I taste something new, mm-hmm. it actually is bothersome to me. Ah. Um, and, and so I, at least it's part of it. And then of course, you know, then as I did expand, you know, and try new things, I mean, I did like some things, but for the most part, my experience has taught me over time that I just don't happen to find those foods very good. Now the, my mentor in this whole field of neurotheology, this guy named Eugene DeQuilly, who was a, a physician and an anthropologist, mm-hmm. he was the complete opposite and he would try, eat 
you know, all kinds of crazy, you know, tripe. If you guys, yeah. if you know what He'd that be an is, Anthony Bourdain traveler. <laughs> yeah, it really. I mean, you know, he would eat everything, and he mm-hmm. loved everything. And because, and and if you said, "Here, try something completely new," he would do it because he knew there was an eighty to ninety percent chance he would like that. Mm. So, so I think when it comes to beliefs and ideas, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're in a little bit of that same position. And again, some of it is is the experiences themselves. You know, if you were in school. And you, you try to come up with something new and your teacher embraced that, then you'd be like, oh, okay, you know, well, I'll try something new the next time. Mm-hmm. If on the other hand, the teacher was like, ah, you know, what a stupid idea. Right. Uh, you know, now that shuts you down. Now mm-hmm. I'm a little nervous about trying something new. And, uh, and again, it depends, you know, it depends on our parents and children, you know, yeah, yeah. There's uh, so many and, and all that. Right. Yeah. But, um, but I think there's ultimately still a genetic component as well. I mean, each, each of us is probably wired, you know, some people are wired to be a little bit more fearful than others. Mm-hmm. And then again, but you know, there, there is a range. I mean, it's, it's the same thing with intelligence, you know, we're, you know, there's some people who are highly intelligent and other people who are less so. And if, you know, if, if, if everybody, uh, yeah, well, the example I use, I'm a tennis player. So, you know, if everybody practiced tennis five hours a day, six mm-hmm. hours a day, we'd all be really good tennis players, but there's still going to be the, you know, the, the Novak Djokovic's and the Fe- Roger Federer's right. of the world who are just going to be better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why, you know, just, yeah. but so, there's something about the way they built, you know, and it's their body, it's their brain. That's um, right. That's right. So, oh boy, there's, uh, I, w- I was going to go down the path and we don't, we're running out of time. So I actually won't go there. And that was about, can we change our wiring? But <laughs> <laughs> well, the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, I and, believe and again, so. We, we talk about that in Brainweaver too. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the, the different practices, um, you know, bringing in things like your diet and nutrition, um, uh, you know, working to kind of consciously, purposely be open to new ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, the brain, the good news is the brain can always be rewired. The brain can adapt and change as we go through our lives. So that's the good news. The, the downside is that it does take energy and it mm-hmm. does take, yes. um, you, you know, a, an ability to sort of push ourselves to that. And, uh, and, and it's, it, you know, it's like, it's like being a bodybuilder, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if you don't keep lifting higher and higher weights and stressing the muscle, it doesn't get bigger. Exactly. So if you just kind of sit there with your brain and you just kind of keep, you know, going on social media and, and staying in the same stuff all the time, right. your brain doesn't really change all that much. No. If you keep, you know, it looking at no the other side and, mm-hmm. and, and, and reading something different. And, you yeah. know, if, if you're, uh, you know, whatever political side you're on, you know, look at what the other side has to say mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and not just like look at it and say, oh, you know, but, but to try to embrace it. Oh, what, you know, what are they really? Yeah, why, why is this the way that it is? Why, right. why, why is that it? important to them? You yes. know, um, yeah. and try to understand that then, then you do get to a point where you're able to, to start to expand and increase the connections in your brain. And that leads to optimal brain health. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. The very thing we started with. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you one final question. What has most surprised you to discover you personally in your research on spiritual experiences? Um, I, you know, I guess I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, I, I, and it, it's sort of two things, I guess, that kind of fit together. I mean, one, one is the incredible diversity of these experiences, um, while at the same time having certain core elements. But um, it really is the, the incredible diversity and, um, and, and the individuality of each of these different kinds of experiences that I, I find so fascinating and, and a very powerful description of, of just, you know, what human spirituality is. Mm-hmm. And, 
And to that end, um, the point that I made earlier, which is that it's given me uh, a very strong sense of compassion and, uh, and an understanding and openness to the fact that people have different beliefs. And um, I hope that that's kind of a natural result of what neurotheology ultimately brings to the table, which is, you know, how does it help to open us up to respect others, to appreciate others, to be compassionate of, of others, to learn from others, um, while still having our own, you know, sense of belief as well. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, we we can we can all be in this world and try to to use these different perspectives to try to ultimately understand um, what reality is all about. I mean, that to me is the the fundamental question that I've been searching for, and and I f- I hope that neurotheology is 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 a good pathway to the, to answer that question. But, um, you know, it's what is real and, and, and how do we know it? And, uh, and I, you know, obviously the brain's important in that, but it's, it's, it's all of our dimensions and it's our energy. It's, it's our connectivity to the world and to the universe. And of course, you know, the spiritual experiences that people have where they feel that they connect with the most fundamental aspects of the world, um, which seem to go beyond our, our science and, and, uh, you know, what our kind of everyday reality experiences are about, you know, I don't know if that, that truly represents the real reality, but it's certainly something to take a good hard look at. Certainly it is. Certainly it is. And, and I read this somewhere in your book, I think that, that those were your early questions and, and, you know, and what propelled you to move into this. And, and I felt, I felt a resonance in me when I read that, because for me, it's always been about what's possible, what's possible for us as human beings and and what's possible then for me, you know, really what is our potential? And it's why I had to look beyond the field of psychology because I was really more interested in that than looking backwards and fixing things. Right. Right. So um, sometimes you have to do both. (laughs) Sometimes you have to do both. And I still find I have to do both. But um, Andy, how can people reach you, find you? What's the best way to do that? And it will be in the show notes, but I would love. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, certainly uh, people can go to the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and learn about our programs um, and some of our brain health programs and so forth and and look up the the books uh, such as Brainweaver. Um, and then, uh, if people are interested more in the neurotheology piece, um, I have my own personal website, which is Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. And, uh, there they can find information about the books that I've written there, um, on the topics and that related to neurotheology and, uh, even, you know, look at the research articles that we've been involved in so they can really look around and, and see a lot of what's been done and, uh, hopefully learn about where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to do that. And, um, I, <laughs> There's, there's more. There's more for me to do. <laughs> oh, there's lots yeah. more for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, for um, for being such a delightful guest, but, to, you know, for for being willing to just jump in here and, and chew on all of this with me. Um, Andrew Newberg, you are really doing some fine and important work, and I appreciate you. Well, thank you. It's a lot of fun to talk about it. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for being with us today at Wisdom Talk Radio. Join us here, as I always say, for more wisdom, discovery, and illumination. Remember that you can find us on your favorite places to listen to your podcasts, wherever that is. And if you've enjoyed listening today, please do leave us a review because that helps more people to access what we're doing here, um, really to access the wisdom that is being shared and to transform the world. And that's no small, small thing. For more about deepening your connection with your own inner guidance system, 
Take the Quantum Connection Quiz now. Thanks for joining us here at Wisdom Talk Radio. We wish you well in your conscious explorations. For more information and to join in the conversation, our website is wisdomtalkradio.com or at Wisdom Talk Radio on Facebook. Facebook.